Good morning again. There we go. We got it. I know it feels like you just heard me talk, <clears throat> but I'll be short. So how's that? We'll make a deal. Um, so glad to have you here this morning. And this morning we've spent a lot of time talking about family. Spent a lot of time talking about what it means to raise up a, a child in a home where God is central, where the gospel is a priority. And um, I want that for my family. I want that for my own kids. When I think about my children and I think about their life, I want to teach them what it means to follow Jesus. And the truth is that it's my job to do that. It's my job to lead and to live in such a way that they understand what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus in the good and the bad, when I do well and when I fail, when I stumble, that I'm still teaching them what it looks like to follow Jesus and what it looks like to embrace the gospel and all that that means for my life. But the problem is I can't live that life for them. At some point, I have to release them. And this is becoming more and more um, an issue for me <laughs> as my children get older and um, as my oldest is about to enter um, junior high school, I start to think about what it looks like to not only model this well and to live this out in front of them, but then to release my children into the world and to let them live this out for themselves and let them learn what it means to follow Jesus and to fail at that, and to do well at that. <clears throat> but the truth is, this is not just for parents. When we talk about this example and what this means and what this looks like, this isn't just a model for parents. We see this exact same model in Scripture. We see this modeled with Jesus and his disciples, because we saw him walk before them and teach them, this is what it looks like to love God. This is what it looks like to live for God. This is what it looks like to live a life that is surrendered to God. And he lived that out before the disciples, like his children. And then, when we get to the book of Acts, he releases them to do it on their own. He says, I'm going to go back and be with the Father, and I'm going to give you a gift. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit, and he's going to help you as you seek to live the way I've shown you to live. So I have modeled it, and now you do it. And so what we see in the book of Acts is a group of people who are trying to live surrendered to the Spirit of God in their life, trying to follow the example that Jesus has set before them as his kids, as his children. So this example isn't limited to families. It's, it's the family of God that we're talking about, what it looks like to live this kind of life. And just about every week in the book of Acts, we've been going through the book of Acts for quite a while now, and every week I will say the same thing. Most of you could recite it, which is kind of the point. The book of Acts is about a group of ordinary people equipped with an irresistible message who are doing extraordinary things through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how we would summarize the book of Acts. And this morning that we're, we're going to see that this is not only done through the power of the Holy Spirit, it's done through the prompting of the Holy Spirit and through the protection of the Holy Spirit. That there are, there's an initiating work that the Spirit is doing in the lives of those who are following. Like a parent prompting this work, initiating this work in the lives of their kids, the Holy Spirit is doing that 
and then guarding and protecting as that message goes out. And we're going to be this morning in the book of Acts, but before we open the word of God, would you just pray with me before we look into his word this morning? Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for this morning and we're so grateful to be here. We pray this morning that you would meet us here and that you would speak to us through your word. Lord, would you show us what it looks like to live surrendered to your spirit and to be responsive to that and to trust in that? And would you grant us this morning a clear understanding of your word and of what you have to say to us through it? In your name we pray, amen. Turn with me, if you would, if you have your Bible this morning, to Acts chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible this morning, you're welcome to use one of ours. We have them in the baskets here on the end. So if you want one, you can just raise your hand and we will pass one down to you. If that feels awkward to you, you're welcome to just listen. That's totally fine. I just want you to know that they're there. If you need a copy of God's Word, that is for you to keep, for you to take. So at the end of the service, you can just grab one, or if you use one now, you can just take it home with you. We're going to be in Acts chapter 13 this morning, starting in verse 1, and just read along with me here in Acts chapter 13. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So we get a picture here of the church at Antioch. We've talked about the church at Antioch a little bit. This is the third largest city in the world. So the church is diverse. The people in the church are diverse and Luke lists them for us. Here are five of the guys. There's a bunch of teachers and prophets, but here are five of them. They come from a bunch of different backgrounds. We've got Barnabas, the Greek-speaking Jew. We have um, Simeon from Africa. We have Lucius from North Africa, Cyrene, who's like a refugee from Jerusalem. We have Saul, who we know is like the great persecutor of the church who's now come to faith in Jesus Christ and is this great proclaimer of the gospel. So this very eclectic group of men that are leading this group of teachers and prophets in the church in Antioch, and as they are worshiping, teaching each other word, and praying together, the Spirit speaks to them together and says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work that I have for them. And it's easy enough to read and say, okay, so the Spirit says this, and they hear this, and they send them off. But... I need to ask you, just think for a minute, what does that look like? What does that mean? The Spirit spoke to them and told them to do this. This is the only time in the book of Acts where we see the the Spirit speak to a group of people, not to an individual. And how does that even work? Is that an audible voice? Uh, I've been thinking about this quite a bit. I've been trying to think of where I have experienced something similar. Maybe you have experienced this in your own life. But I'm, I recall a specific incident in, um, with the elders of our church, the overseers of our church. We were discussing something of great significance. We needed a clear answer. We needed to come to a clear answer together. And so in the midst of our discussion, one of the overseers said, I think we need to just stop and pray for wisdom and for direction, which is not unusual 
but it's maybe unusual to do in the middle of a conversation. And so we stopped. And for 10 or 15 minutes, we just prayed together and sought the Lord and sought wisdom. And I remember in that prayer having a distinct, clear impression of an answer, not a voice, not anything really crazy. I just thought this number came to mind. The thing we were looking for was a number. We stopped praying, and the guy to my left said, I think it's this number. It's the same number I had in my head. And the guy across from him said, I have the same impression. And I was overwhelmed in that moment. I was in awe. This was the Spirit of God at work among his followers who were surrendered to him and seeking his wisdom and his guidance, giving clear direction. I think it can look like that. And the Spirit of God can move in a lot of different ways, but that's a concrete example that I have in my life, and I'm just a regular guy. Just like we say, the book of Acts, just ordinary people. I know you're thinking, yeah, but you're a pastor. But no, I'm just a regular guy, and I'm not crazy. (laughs) I'm not special, and I'm not like a wackadoo. I'm just a regular person, and the Spirit of God can work in my life if I'm surrendered to the Spirit. And he can work in our church if we're surrendered to the Spirit. And I've seen it happen. So I think it can look something like that. And I think for them, it looked something like that. It's embarrassing to me that the Lord has to continually remind me that this is true. It's embarrassing that he has to continually remind me that the Spirit is at work and alive and that God is real and that this is not just a game that we're playing and this is not just like a book of morals, but that this is a living God who's active and working in our life. And I think sometimes as a church, and I have seen this growing up in the church, that we don't want that kind of God. We'd rather have a book of rules than experience God because we're a little afraid of what that would look like to experience him. Or some of us only want to experience him and we don't want to learn anything about him, we just want to experience God. And the truth, I think, is somewhere in the middle. We have to remember that as followers of Jesus, that the Spirit is alive and working And that's what we are seeing in the church in Antioch. So all of that to say, the Spirit says to them, set apart Barnabas and Saul for me, and they do. The story continues in verse 4, if you'll read with me. So being sent out by the Spirit, Luke kind of reinforces that, by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, And they had John to assist them. So we've seen throughout the book of Acts, people going out sharing the gospel. People going out sharing the good news, telling people about Jesus, his life and death and resurrection. That's not anything new. But there's something unique that's happening here that's different than what we've seen before. You Remember, we saw Philip go and preach the gospel to the Samaritans. But Luke told us why he went. Luke went because he was driven, uh, Philip went because they were driven out of Jerusalem because of persecution. We saw Barnabas go to Antioch, but we saw Barnabas sent by the church to the church to encourage the church. Then he becomes a part of the work that God is doing in Antioch and he becomes, he starts serving the Lord there. So there's a specific reason why the gospel is being proclaimed. People are being faithful to share the good news, but this is the first time that we see the church commission people for the purpose of sharing the gospel with those who don't know it. What we're seeing is the first missionaries, the first people sent out commissioned by the church to share the gospel with people that don't know it. 
We've seen Jesus commission his followers. Now we're seeing the church commission its own members to go and proclaim the gospel. And it says this in verse 6, when they had gone through the whole island, as far as Paphos, and if you are, uh, speak Greek, you, I know I'm butchering these names, but I'm just going to read them to the best of my ability. As far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the magician, for that's the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So as they're making their way through the island of Cyprus, they are invited by the governor. Sergius Paulus invites them to come and talk to him. He wants to know what they're teaching. He wants to hear what they're saying. And it says he's a smart guy. He's a man of intelligence, and he's curious about this teaching but Elymas, it says, opposed them, and he seeks to turn the governor away. Now, we hear this name, um, Bar-Jesus, or Elymas. We hear Bar-Jesus, and we think there's some, that sounds kind of provocative. It's sort of like a guy pretending to be Jesus, or he's the, the anti-Jesus. But Jesus is a pretty common name at this time. So there's nothing specific about the name that we need to be caught up in, but we're just going to use Elymas because it's less confusing for us as, as we read and as we listen. Luke tells us a few things about him. says that he's a magician. We've seen a magician before in the book of Acts. If you remember in chapter 8, there was Simon the magician, and we talked about it then. When, when Luke talks about a magician, it's different than how we talk about a magician today. Not an entertainer or a guy that pulls rabbits out of his hat. That is not the type of magician he's talking about. He's talking about someone who is, in this case, an advisor to the ruler of all Cyprus. And he is relied on not only to give wisdom and insight, but also to have control or influence over supernatural things and be able to give insight and input that not an ordinary man couldn't give. And Elymas is in direct opposition to Barnabas and Saul. He puts himself between them and his master. And if we think about it, it makes sense that he would do that. Luke tells us that he's Jewish. It's possible he objects to their message on religious grounds. But seeing that he is also a magician, I'm thinking that's probably less the case. He probably is opposing them on employment grounds. He needs a job. And if he works for a guy who has faith in Jesus, in, in Jesus Christ and has a personal relationship with God, then he's probably out of work. And so he opposes him. We've seen people stand in God's way throughout the book of Acts. It has never worked out well. But let's see how this works out for Elymas. It says in verse 9, But Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil... You enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see for a time. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Doesn't work out great for Elymas either. We see it's pretty consistent. Throughout Scripture, when people stand in God's way, they regret it. It says, 
at the beginning of this, Saul, who is also called Paul. We've known him so far as Saul. That's his Hebrew name. That's how he would be known in the Jewish community. Paul is his Latin name. That's how he would introduce himself to a Roman governor. So that's how he's introduced in this case, and then that's how we're going to know him from now on. Paul rebukes Elymas rather harshly, you could say. He calls him uh, a devil. He calls him uh, an enemy of righteousness. And he says he's full of deceit and villainy. Now contrast that with the way that Luke describes Paul. He says, Paul, full of the spirit. Elymas, full of deceit and villainy. Now, which guy do you want to be in this story? Probably rather be Paul. Part of the harsh rebuke is a punishment. Paul blinds Elymas. It says you're going to be blind for a time, which gives us a sense that there's, a, there's an end to his punishment. It's not a permanent situation that he's in. And I think, I don't know if this is um, coincidental or not, but who better to blind someone for the hope of repentance than Paul? If you know Paul's story, you know that it was Jesus who blinded him on the road and ultimately, Paul comes to faith in Jesus Christ, and he repents of that, and he's now used as a great ambassador for the gospel. So it, Luke doesn't say anything about it. It's complete conjecture, but I almost wonder if there's a point where Paul kind of takes Elymas aside, and he's like, look, man, I have been there. This is the best thing for you. Repent. I have been blind, <laughs> and I have repented. There's power in this message. But Paul asks him a question I think we need to consider this morning. You hear what he says? He says, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Why does he say that? It's obviously a rhetorical question because then he blinds him. <clears throat> but he's saying, why are you trying to derail this? Why are you trying to turn your master aside? Why are you trying to make this complicated? It's not complicated. He says there's a straight path that leads to the Lord. There's a straight path that leads to salvation. And you're getting in the way. See, God has made a way for his children to be with him. He's put a plan in place to bring people into his family. He's done all the work. He's made himself accessible so that anyone who believes can be with him. We know that from Scripture. Whoever believes will not perish but have eternal life. He extends it as a free gift. In fact, that's what Scripture calls it, the free gift of God, salvation through Jesus Christ. We know that the closest distance between two points is a straight line. And Paul says there's a straight path that leads to salvation. It's not complicated. God has brought himself as near as possible so that as many as possible can be with him, so that as many as possible can have eternal life with him and have it abundantly. And look at what happens at the end of our passage this morning, verse 12. It says, Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. The governor believes. He sees what happens. He hears the teaching and he realizes this is not empty. What they're teaching is not empty. It's real. There's real power here. There's a real God behind this. There's real power in what they're saying, and the result is belief. He accepts the message of Paul and of Barnabas. He receives the gift. And what we see in the church of Acts is God 
raising his kids and sending them out, using Jesus as the model to lead them and show them what it looks like, and then sending them out in the book of Acts to continue the ministry of Jesus in the world. And he gives them the Holy Spirit, not only to prompt that work, but to protect that work. Because Paul doesn't have the power to blind anybody. It's God who has that power. Paul has that power available to him through the Holy Spirit, which is a real thing. The message that they're given, the gospel, the good news, the message of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, the proclamation of that message is prompted by the Spirit of God. He's the one that initiates the work that sends him out because God sees a guy in Cyprus who wants to know more about that message. And then 275 miles away in Antioch, he sees people that are surrendered to his spirit that want to proclaim that message. And so what does he do? He brings them together because he wants so desperately for everyone to be a part of his family. So God says, there's someone who needs to know about me and there's someone who's willing to tell him about me and so I'm going to put them together and I'm going to use my spirit to do that. I'm going to use my spirit to prompt the work, to initiate the work, and I'm going to use my church to get the message out. And then when someone stands in the way of that message, I'm going to use my spirit and my power to protect that work so that the governor can believe because the power of God authenticates the message that's being proclaimed by Paul and Barnabas. God will do what it takes to guard and protect his message because he wants people to know it and he wants people to believe it and he wants people to understand it because that message is hope. The message of the gospel at its core is a message of hope and the alternative is hopeless. The message of God is hope and the alternative is hopeless because the invitation is to be a child of God and the alternative is to be separated from him forever. And that's a serious thing. And it grieves God that anyone would not be with him. So he has brought himself as near as possible, a straight line. There's a straight path that leads to salvation, a straight path that leads to the Lord, Paul says. He's brought himself as near as possible and has gone to extraordinary lengths that we might be his children. That's the whole point. That's the story of the Bible. That's the Cliff Notes version. You have with you this morning a connection card in your worship folder, and I'd just like to invite you to take that out at this time. It seems appropriate to end on the note talking about the family of God, given the context of our morning. We spent a lot of time talking about what it means to be a part of a family and what it means to live and model and raise up people to be followers of Jesus. The question for us this morning as a church is, will our family be used by God, not just you or your family, your parents or your children or those that are near to you, but will our church family be used by God? Will our church family be useful to God in reaching those who want to know more about his message? Does God look down in La Habra and see people who want to know more about him and then see a group of people here who are surrendered to his spirit that are willing to go out and share, that are willing to go out and proclaim that message, that are willing to go out and help so that God can bring us together so that everyone would know him? Does God look at our church family and know that he can send us because we're willing to share? Are we prepared? 
Are we preparing ourselves and each other for that message? And are we willing to be used for that purpose? And that's the question I would pose to you this morning. Are you prepared for it? Or are you preparing for it? Or are you willing to be a part of God's plan to reach the world for himself with a message of hope? Because without that message, there is no hope. There's no hope. If God is prompting you, if his Holy Spirit is prompting you, would you even know it? Do you even know what that looks like? Have you experienced that before? Maybe your answer to that question is, I don't know, or I don't think so. I'm not ready, I'm not getting ready, and I'm not willing. That's your answer. That's okay. We should be honest with each other. The last thing I would want is for us to come in here on a Sunday morning and pretend that we're all ready and willing when we're not. So it's okay. If you're not, just say, no, I'm not. So then my question is, how can we help? How, as the family of God, can we help each other be ready and be willing? And that's what I would ask you to share on your card this morning. How can we help you be ready and willing to share? When the Spirit prompts, when He initiates a work among our church, and God needs to send people out to those who need to hear, how do we help you become ready and willing to do that? Maybe you're here this morning and you're more like the governor in our story. You're more like Paulus. You don't know much about what we're talking about. You don't know much about this message, but you're curious. You're interested in it and you really just need somebody to tell you more about it. Paul says there's a straight path that leads to salvation. There's a straight path that leads to the Lord and that he desperately wants you in his family. God desperately wants you to be a child of his and he's invited you. So the question for you this morning would be, will you accept that invitation? Will you accept an invitation into God's family, into that message of hope, into that life of hope that you might spend eternity with him instead of the alternative of spending eternity apart from him? Or will you turn away or will you make it complicated and harder than it needs to be? That's the question before you this morning. God offers hope. And the alternative is hopeless. And I would just say to you this morning, on that connection card, would you share with us if you want to know more about it? There's even a box on there, I want to become a follower of Jesus. Maybe you've heard enough and you're like, I'm in, I'll do it. I don't even know all the implications, but I want that. Check that box. All I can tell you is it's the most important decision you will ever make and is the most important thing to God. What you make what decision you make about that. I'm going to call the ushers forward this morning to collect your connection cards so that we can have those prayer requests and that we can pray along with you. Would you pray with me as we do that? Father God, we thank you that you have invited us into your family, and I just pray that even now you would do a work among us that would make us willing, Lord, willing to be used by you preparing ourselves to be used by you and to share the message of hope that you give us because it is an amazing message. It is irresistible, the message of hope through your son. And so we thank you for that. We thank you for the invitation and pray, Lord, that you would use us in a mighty way. I pray right now for those that are in this room that don't know you. Lord, if you are tugging at their heart, or would you give them the courage to talk to us this morning that they would not leave without hearing that message of hope from us 
in this place. We pray all this in the name of your precious Son. Amen.